Fakoe. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. E Hariakene. An investigation reveals how two scam artists bribed UN diplomats. Also, our task is to respect the decision of our leaders. Pacific Islands Forum Secretary General says time will tell if the US follows through with its pledges. And later, to us it's very important because it's our identity, that's part of our culture. Tuvaluans across Aotearoa are celebrating their language this week. A new investigation from the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP, has revealed details of how two China-born fraudsters who tried to turn a radiation-soaked Pacific atoll into a future metropolis. The investigation reports the duo paid more than $1 million to UN diplomats to gain access to its headquarters before embarking on a controversial plan to set up an autonomous zone in the Pacific Ocean. Carrie Yan and Gina Zhou were sentenced by a US court earlier this year over a plot to bribe Marshall Islands politicians to create an autonomous zone 200 kilometres across open water from Kwajalein Atoll, where the US Army has a military facility. OCCRP reporters found the plan was the final step in a global grifting odyssey by the pair whose multi-million dollar schemes included a miracle water cure and cryptocurrencies. Koroi Hawkins spoke with the lead Pacific editor at the OCCRP, Aubrey Balford, about the story. So this investigation started last year, actually, when news broke um, that these two characters, Karyan and Gina Jo, had been extradited to the United States to face trial in New York for bribing Marshall Islands politicians to set up uh, their special economic zone in Rongelap Atoll. Uh, and it was a story that got a fair bit of attention at the time, and it was a story that before that in the Marshall Islands had been very, very controversial and had really divided politics. Um, but when we saw that they were being tried in the US, we thought, you know, maybe there's something else behind this. Uh, so we just decided to start digging a little more. And um, once we started digging, things just got really, really interesting. Yes, and and reached right up into into the upper echelons of the United Nations. Please talk us through some of some of that part of the story. Yeah, so um, you know, <laughs> one of the first things we noticed about these guys is that as they were trying to carry out their plans in the Marshall Islands, that they were also claiming to have this affiliation uh, with the United Nations. Um, and, you know, there were postings online from their organizations, from, their, you know, Twitter accounts and things like that, of them, you know, posing in fairly official looking settings with, you know, dignitaries and diplomats and sometimes politicians and leaders from countries around the world. Um, we saw that they had this logo that made it look like, you know, that they were affiliated with the UN. And so it was pretty clear that they'd managed to gain access, you know, somehow into UN circles. So as we dug deeper and started looking into who they were talking to and reaching out to people and getting documents, you know, what we found was basically that they'd paid their way in. And are we expecting any or have we seen already any charges being laid, arrests, anything in relation to those aspects of their activities? So um, a lot of what we found hasn't really been reported before, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But one of the really interesting things that we found is that they gained access to the UN using a bunch of, you know, fixers and diplomats that they paid who have been caught up in other cases. So, you know, there's basically three separate sets of other 
scandals that these uh, people intersected with. So, you know, to give one example, um, they managed to get access to the UN, get a photo opportunity uh, with Ban Ki-moon um, by, you know, paying to a shadow account run by Ugandan uh, diplomats um, that were associated with the former president of the UN General Assembly, Sam Kutesa. Now, Sam Kutesa and his staff have been mixed up in, in another bribery case uh, close to the UN. Uh, they also paid for access through a former uh, Dominican Republic ambassador to the UN, Francis Lorenzo, who has uh, also been mixed up in a UN corruption scandal and at that very time was actually um, pleading guilty um, to charges in New York of, of um, bribery at the UN. And then we found that another person that facilitated their entry to the UN, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Liu, is currently indicted in New York on charges of uh, acting as an agent uh, for China in the United States, harassing dissidents in the United States. So basically everywhere we went around this story, we found people mixed up in other criminal cases. And yet somehow these characters managed to slip through and really get themselves ensconced right in the heart of the halls of influence there at the UN. Now, what's next for this story? I, I understand uh, these individuals will be heading back to the Marshall Islands. Are there concerns? So one of the things in the process of the reporting, it's Carrie Ann and Gina Joe, it should be said. They're, they're from China. Uh, they're from mainland China. But at some stage, they managed to get Marshall Islands passports. And, and when we spoke to Marshall Islands officials, including the former president, Hilda Heine, no one seemed to know actually how they got their Marshall Islands passports. But officially, uh, they're Marshallese. So Gina Jo was deported uh, earlier this year, and she's already in Majuro. Carrie Yan, who was really the more senior member of this scheme, um, is uh, due to finish up his prison sentence later this year and presumably will be deported to the Marshall Islands. So there is concern about what they can get up to next because they are citizens. Um, they do have a track record of bribery and the big schemes and scams. Uh, and Marshall Islands is, you know, a country with just 40,000 people um, that does sit in a strategic uh, position in, in the ocean, does have, you know, full sovereignty, um, you know, stuff that it's quite easy or tempting to hijack. So, yeah, there is there is a bit of concern about what could happen next. Aubrey, always a pleasure, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General says time will tell if the U.S. will follow through with its latest Pacific funding pledge. Henry Puna has just arrived back in Fiji after the second U.S. Pacific summit in Washington, where he met President Joe Biden, describing it as a childhood dream come true. At a PIF press conference earlier today, Lydia Lewis questioned him on the implementation of U.S. funding, among other topics. Representatives from forum members attended the second U.S. Pacific Summit. It's something you only read about when you're growing up as a kid at school, and to actually be there was just uh, like a dream come true. 200 million US dollars of new aid was promised this year, but Australia's Lowy Institute Pacific Island Programs Director says Congress is still yet to approve most of the 810 million US dollars in funding pledges made last year. When questioned over why the US is operating at a snail's pace, Henry Puna says there are certain issues that are beyond him. 
We have to take the word of the President of America. There are certain issues that is beyond me and beyond our officials. The discussions have been ongoing and will continue to be ongoing in order to bring to life the commitments that America has made to our leaders. Are you confident that America will provide this funding, that they will follow through with the pledges of last year and this year? Well, time will tell, wouldn't it, Lydia? And with the countdown now on until the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting in Rarotonga, a question mark still remains over who will take over from Henry Puna when his term's up. This is expected to be set in stone in the Cook Islands. Mr Puna says Baron Wanga remains on track to be his successor. That is fact. That is correct, Lydia. The leaders have decided that Baron Walker will succeed me as Secretary General. And coincidentally, uh, yesterday I met uh, Baron Walker at the market just down up uh, Flagstaff here. It was good to see him and his wife. The Wanga appointment was made as part of a raft of measures to repair a rift that had threatened to sink the regional body. Questions have since been raised around the appointment process by President of Palau, Surangel Whips Jr., the Federated States of Micronesia's former president, David Panuelo, and Samoa's Prime Minister, Fiamme Naomi Matafa. Mr Wanga is a former president of Nauru and has been heavily criticised by rights campaigners over his treatment of the hundreds of asylum seekers placed on Nauru by Australia. Do you support him in the role? Would you support him? You know, that is not for me uh, uh, to say. Uh, look, you know, the leaders have decided it's their decision, and our task is to respect the decision of our leaders. Another contentious issue that's simmering is Japan's Fukushima decommissioning process. More than one million tonnes of treated nuclear wastewater from the wrecked Fukushima power plant is slowly being discharged into the Pacific Ocean. There are more than 1,000 tanks storing water that was used to cool the plant after the 2011 nuclear accident. Henry Puna reaffirmed the forum's commitment to make sure the UN nuclear regulator and Japan are accountable. As long as it's ongoing, there will be ongoing concerns from our people, and I appreciate that. But it's an issue that our foreign foreign ministers dealt with extensively when they met two weeks ago. Foreign foreign ministers reiterated their desire to ensure that the IAEA keep up their word of being on the ground to uh, monitor on an ongoing basis the quality of the discharged water. In a statement, Tokyo Electric Power Company says the treated water release from the second lot of tanks will start on October 5th Japan time. Henry Puna says PIF leaders are keeping an eye on the decades-long process. Tuvalu communities across Aotearoa, New Zealand are gathering together to mark and celebrate their language week. This year's theme focuses on preserving, embracing and safeguarding their language, ensuring future generations are able to retain this traditional knowledge. Tiana Haxton joined the festivities in Auckland. West Auckland is home to most of the Tuvaluans living in New Zealand. On Tuesday, the Taumatua and Talanoa Ako, which are the community elders and youth groups, came together to promote the preservation of their language. An intergenerational exchange was on display as they performed Fatele, the traditional dance and song of Tuvalu. A member of the community, Anita Molotai, says their language, their tikana, is their identity. 
Well, language to us is very important because it's our identity. That's part of our culture. I mean, first of all, you identify people by the language before you actually speak to them and also by the looks. And so language is part and partial of our life. It's our culture. It's who we are. Over 4,600 Tuvaluan people live in New Zealand and under half can speak the native language. Youth leader Molia Alama Tulafuno feels a great responsibility to teach Tuvalu youth their language and cultural heritage. We have a young population here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and that's why I think it's very important for me, as someone who speaks the language fluently, to be able to pass on that, the, you know, the language through uh, the activities that we do, the stories and the culture and, and the dancing that we have. In, in our community here in West Auckland. Solofa Awota is a well-respected elder in the community who agrees with Alama Tulafono that young ones need to know their language. They are supposed to inherit, inherit the, you know, the language because they, that's their identity. The richness of the, uh, the, the language, that's important. It's in the best interest of Tuvaluans to be able to imparting of the language to the young once so that they do understand also and not only understanding it but also speaking it, carrying it on for the future generations of Tuvaluans. The event was held at the Pacifica Arts Centre in Henderson where the Tuvalu Taumatsua meet twice weekly to stay connected. Director Jacinda Stoizama is passionate about ensuring this community is able to hold on to their heritage. Tuvalu, it's said anyway by scientists, will be the first digital nation in the world, meaning they will no longer have a land or a place to call home. So for us here at the centre, we actually feel a responsibility to make sure that their stories, their knowledge are passed on for generations to come. It's critical for these people to maintain their way of life, their identity through their language. The week of celebrations coincides with Tuvalu's 45th Independence Day, which was marked on October the 1st. A University of Auckland researcher says immigration reforms are urgently needed for climate migration to New Zealand from low-lying atoll countries. Dr. Olivia Yates is the lead author of a research report called Preparing for Climate Mobility from Tuvalu and Kiribati to Aotearoa, which she released this week for Tuvalu Language Week. She says there are no formal immigration pathways for Tuvaluans and Kiribati to migrate here for climate-related reasons. Instead, they have to navigate an insufficient system that results in community members falling through the cracks without valid visas. Dr. Yates joins me on Pacific Waves. Dalufa Koe, tell me about your research. So my research was looking at the well-being impacts of climate mobility from the Pacific, specifically from Tuvalu and Kiribati to here in Aotearoa. And that was part of my PhD in psychology at the University of Auckland. What led you to become invested in the climate justice space? Yeah, that's a question I often ask myself. Basically, it's a combination of lots of different factors. So... I got involved back in 2018 when I was studying uh, psychology and learning about how basically the way that public health works, that it's not just the direct impacts of climate change that impact people's well-being. It's more these other inequities in society that impact 
the way that climate change then impacts people. So basically climate change is like the threat multiplier uh, that makes the impacts of climate change worse for people who already experience other inequities. Uh, so as I was learning that as someone who was already really passionate about social justice generally, I realized, hang on a second, climate change is not just an environmental issue, it's actually like absolutely 100% a social justice issue. It's it's climate justice issue, basically. So following that, I got involved in Generation Zero, who are a youth-led climate advocacy group. And then around the same time as, as getting involved in activist space up here in Tamaki Makoto, I also started thinking about how I could use my studies and my passion for research to support those on the front lines of climate change. What response did you receive from the Tuvalu and Ikiribas community towards your research? Yeah, so initially uh, the community members just wanted to know a bit more about who I am and why I'm in this space. But once we had a, a sit down and kind of explained a bit about myself and someone who's Balangi with English, Irish and Scottish ancestry and who's really committed to climate justice, uh, they were quite clear on the issues and the challenges that they face, especially with Tuvalu and Kiribati being low-lying atoll, while predominantly atoll islands. I think on average 1.8 metres above sea level for both countries. Uh, yeah, that they face so many injustices and are really keen for people to listen to them and to partner with them to take action. Yeah. Now, why should New Zealand care about immigration reform specifically for this community? Hmm. Ultimately, it comes back down to responsibility and relationship. So New Zealand is not sitting in the Pacific all by itself. Uh, We're really connected across this sea of islands to our Pacific neighbours. And so... We have the relationship there based on those whakapapa connections between Tangata Whenua and Tangata Moana, but also we have a responsibility as people who are neighbours to the Pacific who have political relationships, but we also have uh, the more, uh, the relationship that's connected to our activities in the past, the way that New Zealand has contributed to colonisation in the Pacific and the extraction of resources, which actually make some communities more vulnerable to climate change. We have, therefore, this the responsibility to act on immigration reform through relationship, but also the responsibility through the way that our activities have created harm in the past. And so I think while it's all well and good for the New Zealand government to sort of... Uh, continue to think more globally about its climate actions. We really need to prioritise our relationships with the Pacific and those who are being the most impacted. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you may have seen on the news, immigration has been one of the big topics in this year's election. Have you been able to engage with any of the politicians about the need to create a climate mobility visa pathway? I've not had that discussion with politicians directly, primarily because there's a lot of missing pieces. So uh, I'm I'm a strong advocate for a pathway to climate mobility, for people to have the right to choose whether they want to stay or whether they want to leave. But at the same time, I know that the New Zealand government is 
undertaking some work at the moment about uh, how they might build sort of a partnership approach with our Pacific neighbours around that specific climate mobility visa. And so I think before the conversations with politicians happen, we need to figure out what our partners in the Pacific want to do. But at the same time, uh, I have been having conversations with politicians sort of over the last three years or so around the need for reform in other areas of our immigration policy, sort of while we wait, while we wait for this other stuff to happen. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast week forward.